Come follow me, the Savior said, then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be one with God's own This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, a weekly podcast dedicated to my musings and observations on the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more content, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Hey guys, welcome back. We are working on the assignment for July 29th through August 4th. Acts 22 through 28, a minister and a witness, which is the perfect title for Paul and Paul's journey as he goes through these different trials. Now, jumping right on into Come Follow Me, it says, when we are on the Lord's errand, this is President Thomas S. Monson speaking, we are entitled to the Lord's help. The introduction continues, we are not entitled, however, to a smooth road and an endless stream of successes. And that was one of the things that I really learned this week and I was pondering this week as I was pondering upon Paul's situation and the different things he was going through. And I started thinking about other situations in the scriptures, you know, Lehi and Joseph Smith and even our Savior. They were on the Lord's errand. They were doing what they were supposed to be doing. You know, they were all in 100%, and their lives were really hard. It made me start thinking about my own life, and I got kind of concerned, because I'm like, you know, this shows me that I can be doing 100% everything perfect, and life will still be hard. But I will have the Lord with me, and I think that's what Paul discovered. In fact, I know that's what Paul discovered as he was going through these various trials. Continuing on with the introduction, it says, For evidence of this, we need look no further than Paul the Apostle. His errand from the Savior was to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And we definitely see that fulfilled this week as he is going before kings. You know, King Agrippa, we even have Festus and Felix, and while they're not technically kings, they can be considered, you know, rulers. And so he's he's going before a lot of people. And we see him fulfilling this errand and facing great opposition. He faced chains, imprisonment, physical abuse, a shipwreck, and even a snake attack. And I have to say, the first time I read that here in the introduction, I read it as a snack attack. And I was like, oh, Paul, yes, I hear you. I I face the snack attack on a daily basis. But no, it's not a snack attack. It's a snake attack. So um, yes, he did face a snake attack. We'll talk about that. But we also see that Jesus stood by him and said, Be of good cheer. Paul's experiences are an inspiring reminder that when the Lord's servants accept his call to go and teach all the nations, he will fulfill his promises to them. Lo, I am always with you, even unto the end of the world. That was a really great introduction. It really got me started to think about Paul and everything that Paul went through. And that has always been something that I have loved about Paul. It's one of the reasons that he has always been one of my scriptural superheroes is because Paul went through like a ton of stuff, varying different trials, but he still stayed true to the testimony that he had and he grew through those trials and we really see him grow a lot here in Acts you know most of the story in Acts is narrative we don't have a whole lot of doctrinal type stuff kind of going on but we see him grow through those trials and his testimony strengthened and we see the fruits of that when we get into the Pauline epistles we're going to see a lot of fruit from this particular time and his growth here in the gospel. So it shows me that as I'm going through trials or I'm going through really hard stuff in my life to stay close to my savior and use those trials as stepping stones to grow my testimony and to become more firmly rooted in Christ. The first section in Come Follow Me this week says, disciples of Jesus Christ share their testimonies boldly. And it talks about the powerful testimonies that he delivered while he was being held prisoner by the Roman soldiers. The people he spoke to had the power to condemn him to death, but he chose to boldly bear witness of Jesus Christ and the heavenly vision that he received. And what inspires you about his words? I think the first thing that really inspired me was that he was not afraid. You know, not afraid at all. He was able to stand up and bear testimony of Christ, you know, and he wasn't afraid of what people thought of him. He wasn't afraid of death. Um, He wasn't afraid of pain that might be, 
you know, inflicted upon him by the people who are listening to him. He just wasn't afraid. And he was also fully committed. And that's one of the things that also I love about Paul um, is his consistency. He stays consistent to the gospel of Jesus Christ through the end of his days. You know, and this is something we saw even before he was converted to Jesus Christ back when he was a Jew. He was very fervent and very committed to God. God just needed to kind of turn him in the right direction, you know, to be a witness of Jesus Christ instead of, you know, someone who beats up Christians. So that's something I've always admired about Paul is his, you know, just unfailing commitment to God and to what he knows is right and sticking to it no matter what, no matter what situation he went through. And that was a lot of the stuff that he went through this week. All right. Come follow me says, consider the opportunities you have to share your testimony. For example, when was the last time you told your family or others about how you gained your testimony of the gospel? Well, I think I talked to you guys about it a couple of weeks ago in one of these episodes. I talked about my conversion kind of, you know, just going from, yeah, I was born and raised in the church to being actually like really converted to the church. And so I kind of already shared it with you. So I wanted to share someone else's testimony. And this testimony that I want to share with you is the testimony of our modern day living apostles. And it is the text of the living Christ, the testimony of the apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I know you guys probably already know this. I know you have read it probably many times, but it was important to me today to read this because I feel like, you know, with the narrative that we have in Acts, we talk so much about, and then Paul went here, and this ruler said this, and then Paul went here, and this ruler said this, and then this happened, and this happened, and it's all narrative, and we don't get a whole lot of testimony about Jesus Christ. Yeah, we have Paul's personal testimony of his experiences and his conversion, but we don't have a whole lot of other, I guess, doctrine of Jesus Christ in there. And so it was really important to me to make this episode Christ-centered. And so I really wanted to read this because it is a beautiful testimony of Christ. So here we go. So this is the living Christ, the testimony of the apostles. As we commemorate the birth of Jesus Christ two millennia ago, we offer our testimony of the reality of his matchless life and the infinite virtue of his great atoning sacrifice. None other has had so profound an influence upon all who have lived and will yet live upon the earth. He was the great Jehovah of the Old Testament, the Messiah of the New. Under the direction of his Father, he was the creator of the earth. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Though sinless, he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. He went about doing good, yet was despised for it. His gospel was a message of peace and goodwill. He entreated all to follow his example. He walked the roads of Palestine, healing the sick, causing the blind to see, and raising the dead. He taught the truths of eternity, the reality of our pre-mortal existence, the purpose of our life on earth, and the potential for the sons and daughters of God in the life to come. He instituted the sacrament as a reminder of his great and atoning sacrifice. He was arrested condemned on spurious charges, convicted to satisfy a mob, and sentenced to die on Calvary's cross. He gave his life to atone for the sins of all mankind. His was a great vicarious gift in behalf of all who would ever live upon the earth. We solemnly testify that his life, which is central to human history, neither began in Bethlehem nor concluded on Calvary. He was the firstborn of the Father, the only begotten Son in the flesh, the Redeemer of the world. He rose from the grave to become the firstfruits of them that slept. As risen Lord, He visited among those He had loved in life. He also ministered among His other sheep in ancient America. In the modern world, He and His Father appeared to the boy Joseph Smith, ushering in the long-promised dispensation of the fullness of times. Of the Living Christ The prophet Joseph wrote, His eyes were as flame of fire. The hair of his head was white like the pure snow. His countenance shone above the brightness of the sun, and his voice was as the sound of rushing great waters, even the voice of Jehovah saying, I am the first and the last. I am he who liveth. I am he who was slain. I am your advocate with the Father. Of him the prophet also declared, And now, after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony, last of all, which we give of him, that he lives. 
For we saw him even on the right hand of God, and we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father, that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. We declare in words of solemnity that his priesthood and his church have been restored upon the earth, built by the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We testify that he will some day return to the earth, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. He will rule as King of kings, and reign as Lord of lords, and every knee shall bend, and every tongue shall speak in worship of him. Each of us will stand to be judged of him according to our works and the desires of our heart. We bear testimony, as his duly ordained apostles, that Jesus is the living Christ, the immortal Son of God. He is the great King Emmanuel, who stands today on the right hand of his Father. He is the light, the life, and the hope of the world. His way is the path that leads to happiness in this life and an eternal life in the world to come. God be thanked for the matchless gift of his divine son. And absolutely, God be thanked for the gift of his divine son. So it was important to me to share that with you, again, because I kind of shared my testimony all along different podcast episodes. So I didn't want to say something that you guys have heard before, but I love this testimony that the apostles got together in April of 2000 and wrote down and delivered because It is just beautiful. And to me, it's very similar to what Paul is doing as he's bearing his testimony of Jesus Christ. You know, the apostles got together and they wrote this and they sent it out to, you know, all countries all around the world. And Paul's doing the same thing. He's standing up and giving his testimony to rulers and leaders all around his world, you know, the areas that he visited. And then, you know, once the Bible was published and it's been published all around the world, his testimony's all around the world as well. So there was lots of similarities between this and between what Paul did this week. So I wanted to share that with you guys. Okay, next section and come follow me. Why are there differences between the three accounts of Paul's vision of Jesus Christ? The book of Acts contains three accounts of Paul's miraculous vision on the road to Damascus. Each of these accounts is slightly different from the others and some provide more detail than the others. Because the accounts were told to different audiences for different purposes, it is reasonable that Paul chose to emphasize different parts of the experience for each audience. We talked a little bit about this in the last podcast, that Paul is a master teacher, and Paul does an amazing job of tailoring whatever it is that he's talking about, wherever he is, tailoring his testimony to his audience, and knowing his audience, and using things that his audience would know to kind of build a bridge with them. So I was trying to think of an example. I'm like, how can I like kind of demonstrate what Paul was doing? So I started thinking about Goldilocks and the three bears. Okay, so you know the story of Goldilocks and three bears. The girl breaks into the home, eats the porridge. One bowl's too hot, one bowl's too cold, one bowl's just right. You know, you know, Goldilocks and three bears. So if I were to take that story, you know, someone asked me to come give a talk on Goldilocks and the three bears. And the particular talk that I was giving was to an audience of bears. How would I deliver that talk? Well, in that particular situation, I might tell the story, but really emphasize, you know, Goldilocks broke in and we need to worry about home security bears. Like maybe we need to lock our doors when we go on walks, you know, and kind of emphasize that part of the story. But then I get another phone call and it's like, hey, we want you to come do a talk on Goldilocks and the three bears and your audience is going to be a bunch of little girls. Well, in that case, I'm going to go do Goldilocks and the Three Bears and tell the story, but emphasize, hey, we don't go wandering into strange people's houses. And when we wander into strange people's houses, we definitely do not eat their food or sit in their chairs or sleep in their beds. Like, that's not okay, little girls, right? And then the next day, I get a call, and they're like, hey, we want you to do a talk on Goldilocks and the Three Bears, but it's going to be for an audience of mama bears. So I go and I do the talk on Goldilocks and the Three Bears, but this time I emphasize, okay, Mama Bears, we want our families to be happy and healthy, so we need to make sure that our porridge gets to the correct temperature, right? And we talk about food temperature and food safety preparation, you know? So same story, but different audiences, and it creates the way that I'm speaking to those audiences. It lets me emphasize different things to kind of share a different message. 
And that's kind of what Paul was doing. He had three different audiences with three different needs, and he was addressing each one of those needs. And you can find lots of different accounts online where they kind of compare and contrast like the three different accounts that Paul has. But to me, here are some of the differences I see. The first time that we have an account of it is in Acts 9. And this is probably the most specific version of his account um, narratively. I guess it has, you know, each one of the different things that happen point by point. Everything's kind of given an equal emphasis. I think probably what was happening here is Luke is recording this to kind of for the rest of the church to know what happened to Paul um, as a historical record of this is how Paul was converted, you know, writing it down. So I think that's what's happening in Acts 9. Now, the second account, Acts 22, he is in the middle of a trial before the Jews. And, you know, Paul, especially right after he was converted, before he was told to take the gospel to the Gentiles, was kind of wrestling with the Lord a little bit because he was like, man, I've got this great background as a Jew, and I know all kinds of stuff about, you know, Jewish culture, and I am here for the Jews, and I cannot wait to convert the Jews. And he was all about converting the Jews, and then the Lord was like, no, you gotta go to the Gentiles. And so when we get here to Acts 22, when he's come back for his trial, it's his big moment to convert the Jews. And so he starts out by convincing his audience, like, how Jewish he is. And he does this several different ways. He does it by, you know, addressing them in his native Hebrew tongue. They can tell he's a native Hebrew speaker. So again, I'm one of you guys. I'm one of you guys, right? He reflects back on his conversion, tells them that he was educated under Gamaliel. They would all know Gamaliel. It would be like a household name. He recounts his zeal in persecuting the Christians. They'll be like, oh yeah, that was the guy that was going around like hauling Christians into the street and killing them and stuff. Okay, so they would all know him and they would like be able to build that bridge. And then he could say, yeah, but all that guy's My life changed when I met Jesus Christ. And so he's trying to establish a little like a street cred with the Jews, right? Before he goes in and he kind of tells them the story about Christ and his conversion to Christ. So that's his second account. In his third account, we see in Acts 26, he's standing before King Agrippa. And so this audience that he is testifying to, they'll be a little bit more worldly. Um, They would also be much more Gentile. There would probably be a lot of, I guess, people who committed the sins of that day. That culture was really into like lust and different things that they were like all into. And so in this particular account, we see him referring to things like, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks of the spirit, you know, things like that. And that he was chosen by God and we see the conversion in himself to Jesus Christ. Kind of trying to tell the people like, okay, so you are where you are now in your sins and in the choices that you are making, but you know that it's wrong. Deep down inside you, deep, deep down inside you somewhere, you know what you're doing is wrong. And you can accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and you can transform your life into a life that follows Christ, just like I did. And that conversion story is going to those people out there that he's trying to reach in the audience before King Agrippa. Sometimes people use these three different accounts to discredit Paul and say, you know, the Bible is not true because if it was true, he would have the same account in every version. But no, again, like Goldilocks, you know, you're talking to different audiences. You're going to emphasize different things um, to build bridges with your audience and, you know, your students as you're teaching them, right? And so I think instead of discrediting the Bible, this actually strengthens the narrative because it shows how Paul taught them. And we can even extrapolate that to the testimonies of Joseph Smith. When he has the different accounts of the first vision, he's talking to different audiences. And also, I think over the course of your life, you remember different things and different things become emphasized to you based on what you are going through in your life at that time. They become more important. So I think, again, that this does not discredit Paul. It does not discredit Joseph Smith. It, in fact, strengthens their testimonies and strengthens the testimony of the reality of these things happening. So like Come Follow Me says, the various accounts were given to different audiences for different purposes and provide insights that would not be available if only one account existed. So that's why we have the three different accounts. Next section, Come Follow Me. The Lord stands by those who strive to serve him. As Paul's ministry clearly shows, difficulties in our lives are not a sign that God disapproves of the work we are doing. In fact, sometimes it is during the difficulties that we feel his support most strongly. 
All right, and I started thinking about that this week. This week has been kind of a hard week for me, and I feel like I've been saying that a lot in my episodes, but this week in particular, I was struggling with some things, and y'all know, like, my big red button issue that I deal with a lot is self-worth and self-esteem, and that was kind of, you know, worrying on my mind this week, and I was kind of obsessing over it, and just feeling like, you know, I'm just not good enough. I'm just not good enough for all the things that I've got going on in my life, and for all the different expectations that people have for me, and all the different responsibilities that I have. And, you know, the spirit kind of came to me and said, you're right. You're not good enough without Christ. And he is going to be the one that fills in the gaps, who takes you where you are and makes you where you need to be, who takes whatever little measly effort that I make and he makes it enough. And so through Christ, those difficulties become not so difficult. I mean, they're still difficult. They're still hard, but they're possible. And I become more and I feel better about myself when I am with Christ. And I heard a song on the radio. Y'all know I love Lauren Daigle. Her song, You Say, came on the radio right when I was in the middle of one of these like, oh Lord, I'm just not good enough. I can't do this, you know, moments. And it was the perfect thing that I needed at that moment. So I want you guys to listen to it. This is You Say by Lauren Daigle. Voices in my mind that say I'm not enough Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up Am I more than just the sum of every high and every low Remind me once again just who I am because I need to know
love that song because of the word specifically, remind me who I am. I need to know. And that's what the Lord does. I feel like, especially in those moments where I'm not feeling good about myself or I'm feeling kind of worthless, you know, I come to the Lord and he reminds me of my worth and the worth in his eyes and that I'm loved no matter what I look like, no matter what I'm able to do or not able to do, that I'm still loved and I'm still worth something to him. And so that's how I see the Lord kind of helping me through my trials this week. But I also see the Lord doing that with Paul. As we are talking, you know, the different chapters that we went through this week, no matter where he stands, Paul knows who he is, and he knows that he's the Lord's, and he knows that he is a champion for the Lord's truth, no matter what arena he's facing, no matter what audience he's facing, and he keeps him going. And I love that so much. In fact, in my notes for the next question in Come Follow Me, it says, How did the Lord stand by him? And what does this teach you about your own efforts in the Lord's service? And underneath this, in my notes, I have one sentence. And it's in bold. And it says, He got back up again. And it reminds me a lot of the movie Captain Marvel. I'm a huge Captain Marvel fan of the comics, like the Captain Marvel series and the comics. I love those. I am like super big fan of those. Movie, not so much, okay? But there's one montage in the movie that I'm a fan of, and that's the one where it shows Carol Danvers, everything from the time when she's a little girl, where she keeps getting knocked down and she gets back up. And, you know, again and again she gets knocked down and she gets back up and knocked down and she gets back up. And it's a really powerful montage put together. And that's kind of how I see Paul. Like, he gets knocked down, he gets back up. He gets knocked down, he gets back up. He gets knocked down and he gets back up. And I kind of saw that this week as I was going through Acts and, you know, reading the different situations that he's in. So one sentence, all in bold, he got back up again. And Come Follow Me asks you to go in through the different examples of times where he got back up again. So we're going to go through those real quick. The first example is in Acts 14, 19 through 20. And so this is where he's in Antioch and Iconium, and he gets stoned, and they think he's dead, right? And they kind of leave him for dead. And it says, but he got back up again, okay? And he walked to Derby. So he has just been stoned and beaten and left for dead, but he gets back up and he walks to another city right down the road. So he got back up again there. Then in Acts 16, 19 through 27. So he's in Philippi. This is where he's cast the demon out from the girl. Her masters get upset because they've lost their livelihood. And Paul is beaten. He's whipped. He's put into prison, put into stocks. He and Silas are there. And what do they do? They decide to sing. He's beaten down, but he gets back up again and he sings. And because of that, he's able to convert his jailer. Then in Acts 21, 31 through 34, we see kind of the wind up to all the different trials that Paul goes through during our reading this week. A kind of rewind. We are in Acts 21, 29. The Jews see him in the city with Trophimus, I think is how you say his name. He's an Ephesian. And they thought Paul brought him, who is a Gentile, into the temple. This was a bad, bad thing. Like, they were really unhappy with him about this. And that's where the trial started because they were like, dude, this guy just brought a Gentile into our temple. And we read in 30, and all the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul, and they drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. And 31, and as they went about to kill him, tidings came upon the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. This means that they've gotten the attention of the Roman soldiers, who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating Paul. So Paul has already been beaten, right, when the Roman soldiers arrive on the scene. 33. And the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done. 34. And some cried one thing and some another among the multitude, and when he could not know for certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried unto the castle. And when he came upon the stairs, so it was, that he was born of soldiers for the violence of the people. So he's erupted such a storm that the soldiers are literally having to protect him from the people. The multitude followed after him, crying, Away with him! And as Paul was to be led to the castle, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee? who said, wait a minute, you can speak Greek? And Paul answers him, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a citizen of no mean city, and I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with his hand unto the people. 
And there was great silence, and he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue. Again, we have Paul working his audience. When he's with the Roman soldiers, he speaks to them in Greek. And they're like, wait a minute, you can talk to us in Greek? You're not just some Hebrew guy? Like, you know Greek? And he's like, "Uh, yeah, I was born in Tarsus. So I can definitely speak Greek. But then he turns around, and when he's ready to talk to this mob who's pretty much ready to kill him, he's able to talk to them in Hebrew and kind of address them from a Jewish standpoint. This is another example I see in Paul of the Lord really preparing him and giving him the tools that he needs to be able to fulfill his mission. Even though his mission is really hard, he has everything he needs in his proverbial tool belt, I guess, as it is, um, that he's able to pull out these different tools at different times, different languages at different times to different audiences and connect with them in different ways. This story in particular was one of the ways that I saw that. Um, the next example, come follow me, ask us to look at is in Acts 23, 10 through 11. And this is where he's standing in front of kind of the tribune. This is um, Ananias, the high priest, and you've got like a bunch of Pharisees there. You've got a bunch of Sadducees there. They're all kind of mashed together. And Paul stands up before him and he says, Men and brethren, I have lived in good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded him that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. All right, so he's beaten again. And then he and Ananias kind of trade barbs back and forth for a minute or two. But then in 6, we see, And when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called into question. All right. (laughs) Paul's a genius. This is what he did here. So you've got a council full of Pharisees and Sadducees. Now remember, the Sadducees do not believe in a resurrection. Okay? And because of this, the Pharisees and Sadducees do not like each other. They really butt heads over this particular point of doctrine. And so Paul's establishing himself as like, oh, but I come from this long line of Pharisees, and I have this whole history of being a Pharisee, and I totally believe what the Pharisees believe, which is that there's a resurrection. And at this point, 7 we read, And as he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry. And the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So all of a sudden you have the Pharisees up fighting for Paul against the Sadducees, right? And it says, And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled to pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force and to bring him into the castle. All right, so I kind of see this, you know, you see this in cartoons sometimes where you've got like the main character and everyone's kind of like coming in on him and they get into this big fight and there's like the big cloud that kind of comes around. You see stars coming out of the cloud and like feet and legs and arms because everyone's just beating each other up and then the main character kind of like scoots out from underneath like the big brawl, right? That's kind of what I see what happened here. Paul caused a big brawl here in the Tribune where the Pharisees and the Sadducees were just like going off and fighting each other on this point of doctrine instead of fighting Paul. And so it became this big deal, and the Roman soldiers are kind of like, okay, we need to get this guy out of there. And Paul must have been really kind of down in the dumps after this happened. Although I think, you know, this was a brilliant move on his part. But it still must have been really disheartening to see the people that he really wanted to teach the gospel to just fighting so much. But in 11, it says, The Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, and so must thou bear witness also at Rome. And so that's one of the things I see too as Paul's going about his various missionary journeys and things like that. He goes about and he knows he is going to be hurt. He knows he might be in prison. He knows his message is going to get rejected. But he knows he's not going to be put to death before he goes to Rome. And I heard a really great quote somewhere recently where it says, we are all immortal until God says, you know, we could all live forever until God says, nope, your time is up. And so I think that's the situation here. Paul was immortal until God said, nope, your time is up. And until that moment, he was not going to take Paul from this earth. And so we see that Paul's kind of safe in that knowledge and okay, beat me, you know, make fun of me 
put me in prison. That's fine. I'm just going to make it to Rome. And that's kind of where his end goal becomes because that's what the Lord wants him to do. And then after that, we have the story of the shipwreck. And I like kind of really love the story of the shipwreck. I think it's really fascinating. It's almost like something that you would read out of a storybook or a fairy tale. So he's on his way to Rome and he is on the ship and the ship kind of takes off and he's like, guys, um, I think we need to make a little pit stop over at this island while the weather is good because there's some stormy weather ahead of us. And everyone on the ship is like, no, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. And he's like, okay. And so they go and all of a sudden a storm hits and it's really bad to the point that they are casting cargo over the side. We see in 18 that they lighten the ship. In 19, they start casting out like the tackling of the ship, like the ship parts and stuff like that, trying to lighten the boat in the middle of this tempest. And there was neither sun nor stars in many days appeared. It's so dark and the storm is so bad, they can't even see the sun or the moon or the stars, right? It's so dark and they are just living in this. And in 21, after a long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened to me earlier and not have continued on. We should have stopped where I told you to stop to have gained this harm and loss. Now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. So don't worry, guys. You're all going to live, but we're going to be in a shipwreck. Like, how would you like that? Like, maybe you're on a plane somewhere and be like, okay, guys, so the plane's going down and we're going to crash, but don't worry, everyone's going to live. I mean, that's still kind of a scary thing to have someone say. And he bears his testimony of what happened. He said, there stood by me this night an angel of God, whose I am. And he said unto me, fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar. And lo, God hath given thee all that sail with thee. Again, Paul's immortal until God says he's not. So at this point, God has also said, I'm going to give you everybody that's on the ship with you. They're all going to be saved too along with you. And so he says, be of good cheer. Howbeit, we will be cast upon a certain island. So just mentally prepare yourself for that. And after they've been on the storm for 14 days, at midnight, shipmen deemed that they drew near some country. And the guys who ran the ship were like, okay, enough of this. Like, I'm done. I'm getting out of here. And so they kind of like went towards the front of the ship and like lowered down like a little smaller like skiff. And they were going to hop in and kind of go to whatever coast or country they thought was nearby and kind of abandon the soldiers and the prisoners and everything on this ship. But Paul tells them, no, don't do that. You have to stay with us. You have to stay here on the ship if you want to live. And I guess things have changed at this point to the point where they start believing Paul. And so they cut off the little skiff that they were going to hop into and row to the country. And they say, they stay there on the boat instead. And he tells everybody on the 14th day that everyone has been fasting. In 34, he says, Wherefore, I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health. For there shall not be a hair fall from the head of any of you. And when he had spoken, he took bread and gave thanks to God in presence of them all. And when he'd broken it, he began to eat. Um, He probably knows that there's like a big swim coming ahead of him. You know, the ship is going to wreck. It's going to crash. And they're going to need to swim to the island. So they do need some energy. And so he kind of sets the example for him. And in 36, we see that they followed his example. They were all of good cheer. And they also took some meat. And then it becomes daylight. And they find a certain place on the shore where they're like, okay, so we're going to try and put in here because we think that will be the safest part. And they kind of let the sails and everything loose. They let the anchors loose and they kind of just let the ship have its way, right? The forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable. And the hinder part was broken about with the violence of the waves. So this is the actual shipwreck. And in 42, the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. And remember, in Roman society, the rule was, if you lost a prisoner, whatever sentence was proclaimed upon that prisoner was now your sentence. And for a lot of these prisoners on the boat, their sentence was death. So they did not want to lose any of these prisoners. They would much rather have their prisoners dead than escaped. And the centurion that was in charge of Paul kept them from their purpose and commanded that they should all swim out first into the sea and get to land. I think at that point they respected Paul enough. I don't necessarily know that they like had any faith or anything like that to believe him, but they respected him enough that they were following his example. And so the centurion stands up and says, no, don't touch this guy. He's our good luck charm. You know, they're very superstitious. So they kept Paul alive and then they went and they swam to the island, right? 
the rest, some on boards, some on broken pieces of the ship. I'm thinking of like the Titanic and Rose on that door or wherever. Like, don't let go, Jack. Don't let go. There was totally room for Jack on the door too. I just want to say that. But so they all escape safe to the land. Then in chapter 28, we find out that the land where they escaped to, the island, was called Melita. And this is actually Malta is where they escaped to. It says Melita in the King James Version, but it's actually Malta, which is interesting because the word Malta in Greek actually means refuge, which is a fitting name for a place where you get shipwrecked, right? So Malta. And the people there, the natives there, were really kind to them. It was cold and it was wet and they kindled a fire for them and they received us every one because of the present rain and because of the cold. And so then Paul goes out and he's gathering up a bunch of sticks to put in the fire, as firewood, right? And there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. Okay, y'all know that I am not a fan of snakes. But I grew up in a household with a father who was a big fan of snakes and a brother who was a fan of snakes and actually had a snake. So I know just a little bit about snakes. And so one of the things I know about snakes is that they're cold-blooded. So when it's cold and rainy outside, they're kind of like super sleepy and semi-conscious. So I'm sure that's probably what happened is he picked up all these these sticks and logs and stuff to put on the fire and there was probably a little snake curled up somewhere in there like just trying to you know survive through this cold weather and he goes to go throw it in the fire and at this point it's warm enough that the snake's kind of waking up and saying whoa what's going on guys and he turns around and kind of like clamps onto Paul and it's not just like a little nibble or not just like a little like oops you know that would happen sometimes my brother would go in to feed a snake he had a corn snake and he would go in to feed a snake snake would like miss judge where the mouse was and like latch onto my brother's hand but it was always one of those things where he was like oops and like kind of like sorry and like jump back off again I didn't mean to eat your hand but this snake it doesn't sound like that was the case it sounds like he latched on and apparently it was a venomous snake so we're not entirely sure what kind but there's all kinds of nasty critters that live in that area of the world and it said a venomous beast was hanging on his hand so you know the snake's there hanging on his hand Paul shakes him off into the fire and felt no harm now, one of the things I do know about snakes, especially venomous snakes, and this, guys, I just read a lot, so I know a lot of random junk, okay? This is not particularly, like, I didn't research this or anything, I just know random junk. So, the random thing that I know is that sometimes when venomous snakes strike, their venom does not always come out when they strike. Like, you know, a rattlesnake comes up and bites you. Yes, most of the time you will have venom injected in that bite, but there are times when the venom will not be injected. And my guess is in this case... Maybe because the snake was cold and it had been cold and kind of hibernating-y, when it struck Paul, I don't think the venom came out. And I think that was one of the ways that the Lord protected him. You know, it kept the venom from coming into Paul's hand. So Paul just shakes him off into the fire and is like, oh, nope, fine. And then all these people are looking around. The little barbarians is what they call them, the natives, whoever was living there on the island. You know, they said, no doubt this man is a murderer whom, though he escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. And it says in the original Greek translation that the vengeance sometimes is translated as justice and sometimes it's translated as the God of justice, you know, because we're in Greece, right? So they pretty much thought, you know, he's a murderer, but the God of justice is now avenging him. Like, look, this is our mythology playing out right before us, right? And then when he shakes the snake off, they're like, whoa. Like, what is this? The God of justice has been defeated? What? And so that's when they thought he was a god. Because, you know, again, they're in a culture of mythology. Everything's a god to them. So they thought he was a god. And then further adventures of Paul on the island. He's hanging out with them. And the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius, received us and lodged us three days courteously. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, which y'all don't even want to know what that translates to, but it's not pleasant, right? Probably dysentery. And Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. And at this point, words getting around the island like, hey, this guy's healing people. And so everyone comes around, comes around and they were all healed. And everyone from the shipwreck was honored with much honors. You know, the peasants rejoiced. Life went on. It was all good. So that is the story of Paul's shipwreck. I just kind of love that story because it's just, there's something that's just very fairy tale about it to me. So that's the story of Paul's shipwreck. Now to many, it would seem like this was kind of a big trial, but Paul 
definitely, I think, used it in several ways to kind of set an example of what the gospel is. And, you know, even the Roman centurion was kind of like, okay, so good luck charm here. The people there in Malta saw his example. Paul may not have been converting souls at this point, but he may have been planting seeds that later turned into conversion. And there's a quote I found from Elder Orson F. Whitney said, No pain that we suffer, no trial that we experience is wasted. All that we suffer and all that we endure, especially when we endure it patiently, builds up our characters, purifies our heart, expands our souls, and makes us more tender and charitable. It is through sorrow and suffering, toil and tribulation, that we gain the education that we came here to acquire. And I love that because it talks about enduring patiently. And I was actually listening to another podcast this week. It's called The Sarah and Dr. Brooke Show. And it's like a functional medicine podcast for women about like women's hormones and things like that. And one of the things that they talk about is when you are going through a rough time in your life, when you're going through like a shipwreck like Paul was, or when you've been beaten and thrown into a prison like Paul was, is to take a moment and honor that pain and honor what you are feeling and realize what you could possibly learn from it. You know, I think as a society, we are so driven whenever we feel bad or whenever things go wrong that we want to find and get happy as quick as possible. Like, I cannot stay in the situation. I need to get back to happy as quick as possible. Um, And we don't really allow ourselves to really feel that pain sometimes. And pain can be very instructive. There's a reason that we're feeling that pain and there's things that we can learn from that pain and not just suppressing it or not trying to get over it and get past it as quick as possible. You know, we can heal a little bit more from it and also we can learn from it. And I think that's where Paul was kind of getting to the point, especially I see this in the story where he's imprisoned and he converts his jailer. You know, he's like, okay, so this is a really bad situation, but I'm going to sing and I'm going to turn this into something good. And so he doesn't just gloss over it, but he uses that situation to learn from it and to turn it into something better. He's on the ship and people aren't believing him. So he just kind of stays quiet for a couple of days, you know, and he's like, okay, I'm in a bad situation. But then he stands up again and is like, guys, the ship's going down, but we're all going to be saved. Right. And so all that we suffer and all that we endure, especially when we endure it patiently, builds up our characters, purifies our hearts and expands our souls and makes us more tender and charitable. Take that moment to honor that pain and what it's going to do for you in your life. And I really kind of like that idea because then it makes not a single moment of anything that you're ever going through wasted, right? Paul V. Johnson in the October 2011 conference said, A pattern in the scriptures and in life shows that many times the darkest, most dangerous tests immediately precede remarkable events and tremendous growth. After much tribulation comes the blessings. The children of Israel were trapped against the Red Sea before it was parted. Nephi faced danger, anger from his brothers, and multiple failures before he was able to procure the brass plates. Joseph Smith was overcome by an evil power so strong that it seemed he was doomed to utter destruction. When he was almost ready to sink into despair, he exerted himself to call upon God, and at that very moment he was visited by the Father and the Son. Often investigators face opposition and tribulation as they near baptism. Mothers know that the challenges of labor precede the miracle of birth. Time after time, we see marvelous blessings on the heels of great trials. The Apostle Paul taught, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It is interesting that Paul uses the term light affliction. This comes from a person who was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, imprisoned, and who experienced many other trials. I doubt many of us would label our afflictions light. Yet in comparison to the blessings and growth we ultimately receive, both in this life and in eternity, our afflictions truly are light. And that, again, is from Elder Paul V. Johnson from the October 2011 conference. Paul, in that moment, he's honoring the pain. He's honoring what he's learning from it. And so then he can say, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So whatever you're going through, whatever struggles you have, whatever afflictions you have in your life, honor it, feel that, but know 
that it is going to prepare you for something much better and something much bigger than you can ever possibly realize. And like Elder Johnson says, in comparison to the blessings and growth we will ultimately receive from whatever the struggle and trial is, both in this life and in eternity, our afflictions truly are light. All right, the next section, come follow me. I can choose to accept or reject the words of God's servants. Through his ministry, Paul bore powerful testimony of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Many people accepted his witness, but not everybody did. As you read Acts 24, 24 through 7, and Acts 26, 1 through 3, and 24 through 29, write words and phrases that show how the following Roman rulers in Judea reacted to Paul's teachings. Okay, so the first ruler that we have there in Judea is Felix. And I put in parentheses next to Felix and Drusilla. Drusilla is his wife. So let's talk a little bit about Felix. Who is Felix? His name is Antonius Felix, and he began life as a slave. His brother Pallas was a friend of the emperor Claudius, and so through this influence, he rose in status, first as a child gaining freedom from slavery, and then through intrigue, he became the first former slave to become a governor of a Roman province. So Felix has risen pretty quickly. His star is kind of shot up in the sky. So you know that this guy, he's a little weaselly. And he's a little opportunist, and he's kind of climbing up that social ladder. So he's got kind of that personality. Tacitus, the Roman historian, described Felix as a master of cruelty and lust. Felix is not a good guy. The picture drawn by Tacitus of Felix's private and public life is not a pretty one. Trading on the influence of his infamous brother, Pallas, he indulged in every license and excess, thinking he could do no evil and act with impunity. Right, and a good example of this is Drusilla, his wife. Now, this is not like his wife is in like, you know, just we have one wife. This woman was the sister, first of all, of Herod Agrippa II and Bernice, mentioned in Acts 25 that we're going to meet. So King Agrippa in just a minute. Drusilla was beautiful, ambitious, and was about 20 years old at this point. And Felix had seduced her away from her current husband, and he made her his third wife. So she wasn't actually like just his wife wife. He had three wives and she was apparently his third. Felix and Drusilla not living the good high moral life. And so we read in Acts 24, 24. And after certain days when Felix came to his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. 25. As he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, tra Greek translation for this is self-control, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. So Paul is talking to Felix. And again, Paul, he's just awesome about talking to his audience. He's talking to Felix and Drusilla. And you know you know what their lives are like. And in 25, it says he's talking to them about being righteous. He's talking to them about self-control. And he's talking to them about judgment to come. Like, guys, you need to change your ways. You need to change your heart. Get it together. That's what he's kind of telling them. And so then Felix gets a little afraid and is like, uh, yeah, go away for a moment. And uh, when I have a better time, I'm going to call for you. He keeps Paul for two years. This was the length of time that he was allowed to keep Paul legally was for two years. He brought Paul forth a couple different times to kind of come talk to him. He was hoping that Paul and the little fellow Christians that followed Paul, that they would be able to raise enough money for a bribe to bribe him for Paul. So again, he's not actually listening to Paul. He's not really actually believing him. He's kind of stringing him along, hoping that there will be money coming in. Felix, not a nice guy kind of weaselly. And then Horseus Festus comes into Felix's room and Felix willing to show the Jews a pleasure left Paul bound. Again, he's afraid to upset the Jews. The same thing that happened to Jesus. No one wants to upset the Jews. They're happy with where they are politically. They've got good stuff going on for them politically. They don't want to rock the boat. Felix leaves him bound and sends him on to Festus. Now, Festus to me, as we read the different histories and stuff of Festus, it shows me to me that he's basically a good guy, and he's basically a good public servant. Um, an example of this is when he first comes to Caesarea, like his first stop is to go to Jerusalem. So he's in Caesarea, the capital of the Judean province, and he immediately makes the trip to Jerusalem, which is probably the most important city of the province. So he doesn't stop. He doesn't like hang out with his friends or anything like that. Like he goes straight to Jerusalem. Like he is all about getting business done. Like that's his mind. And I think it's important to know that as we go into the trial of Paul, because 
he's not going to be easily swayed. His first priority is to the office that he's called, right? He's going to kind of side with the Jews. And I think Paul knows this. And I think that's why he's so adamant that he is going to go see Caesar. We actually see this in Acts 25, 9. And it says, Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before me? The Jews wanted him in Jerusalem because they wanted to kill him along the way to Jerusalem. And Festus, I don't know if he knew of that plot or not, but whether he did, he wanted to make the Jews happy because he knew that if he made the Jews happy, that was his people that he made happy. And again, he's very committed to being their ruler. And so he was more on the side of making the Jews happy than he was on the side of correctness and what was fair and what was right. Now, Paul, as a Roman citizen, had certain rights. And one of those rights was that he was able to appeal to Caesar. And Caesar was like the Supreme Court of his day, right? So he's like, you know what? I'm not going to mess around with you. I'm not going to mess around with you. You're not going to be unbiased. So nope, I'm going to Caesar. And he says in 10, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof they accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. Festus says, well then, in verse 12, then unto Caesar thou shalt go. Festus, I don't think he ever was swayed to Paul. I don't think he ever really believed Paul. I don't think he really took Paul's testimony. I don't, I just think he just wanted to be done with him. He wanted to make the Jews happy and he wanted to get rid of him. So he sends him off to King Agrippa. And we see in 25, this is Festus talking to King Agrippa. He says, but when I found that he committed nothing worthy of death and that he himself has appealed to Augustus, I've determined to send him. Now, who is King Agrippa? <laughs> he is one of the Herods. This is the man whose great-grandfather tried to kill Jesus as a baby. His grandfather had John the Baptist beheaded. His father had murdered the first apostle James and was also eaten by worms. Okay, that that's that Herod. So this is Herod Agrippa. Agrippa's family history made him unlikely to receive Paul warmly. He does not have a good historical standing when it comes to Christ, right? Herod Agrippa ruled a client kingdom of the Roman Empire to the north east of Festus's province. Agrippa was known as an expert in Jewish customs and religious matters. He was of great influence because the emperor gave him the right to oversee the affairs of the temple in Jerusalem and the appointment of the high priest. Though he did not have jurisdiction over Paul in this case, his hearing was of the matter that would be helpful for Festus. So he had great cultural significance and influence, but this was not actually his jurisdiction. Festus calls him in, though, because he's like, hey, the Jews really want this guy killed, and I really don't know what to do. And So that's why King Agrippa is actually hearing the trial of Paul. And so Paul comes and stands before him and gives him his testimony of his conversion. That's where we get the third conversion story from. And then 24, this is one of my favorite quotes here. Festus says to Paul, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. And I love the quote, much learning doth make thee mad. Um, my dad actually quotes that to me quite regularly. He's like, stop reading. Much learning doth make thee mad. And I'm like, ah, whatever. I still like to read. And then in 25, Paul answers back and says, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth with soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom I also speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. All right, so he's talking about King Agrippa. And I don't know if he's insinuating that, like, Paul knows that King Agrippa believes that he's just afraid to say it, or if it means that King Agrippa just is aware of what's gone on in the culture. I'm not sure really what the, I guess, significance behind what Paul's saying in that verse there, but it's interesting to me, especially knowing what comes next. In 27, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. And then in 28, Agrippa says unto Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And that almost right there, that almost is what I think a lot of times holds us up from being firmly committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I almost want to pay my tithing, but I really want this pair of shoes this month instead. Or I almost want to do this thing, but I know I shouldn't. You know, it's that almost that kind of hangs us up a lot of times. So I don't think we can judge King Grippa too harshly for that almost because I think we commit those almosts all the time. And the other thing I think that has King Agrippa kind of holding him back is that you notice Bernice is sitting next to him. Bernice is actually his sister. 
So there was a little bit of incest going on with this, which is kind of gross. But, you know, maybe he's thinking she doesn't believe and he doesn't want to look bad in front of her. He doesn't want to look bad in front of the people that are listening to this. So he says, almost. You know, maybe he does believe deep down, but he doesn't believe him enough to stand up for him. And that's what I see with King Agrippa. But as a result of all these trials that Paul has went through, he wins an all-expenses-paid trip to Rome. King Agrippa sends him off to Caesar. And the last question from Come Follow Me talks about after Paul's shipwreck. Um, It says, While sailing to Rome to be tried by Caesar, Paul prophesied that hurt and much damage would come to the ship and its passengers. And it says, Find out how Paul's shipmates reacted to his warnings. We talked about that. It says, Have you ever reacted like any of these people when you heard the teaching of church leaders? What are some possible consequences of reacting in these ways? And how? what do you learn about these accounts from heeding the counsel of the Lord through his servants? Well, one of the things I thought of when I was like reading about this and pondering upon these questions, I was thinking about when I was like 15 years old. And I really, really, really wanted to go on a date with this one guy. Like, really wanted to go on a date. It was like to a dance or something, some kind of formal there at my school. And because it would have been a date, you know, if it was just a dance and I was just going with a bunch of friends, I think it would have been fine. But because it was like a date, like in quotation marks, like an official date, I was not allowed to go because in the for the strength of youth book, it says you need to wait till you're 16 to go on a date, right? And it was two weeks. My birthday was two weeks after this dance. So I was only two weeks away from being 16. And so I was throwing this big giant fit at my house. And, you know, I'm like, why this is so stupid? Like, why would they make this rule? It's so arbitrary. I'm not going to be any more mature in two weeks than I am now. And, you know, just threw a fit. And we had family home evening regularly. So we sat down and we had a family home evening. And, you know, my parents, very inspired, I guess, by what my little fit had had caused, um, talked about when you go to the zoo, and you see the lions in their little, like, enclosure. What are some things that are between you and the lions? And I'm like, well, okay. So he has this little white erase board, and he drew, like, a little picture of a lion on there. We're like, well, usually there's, like, a moat. And he's like, okay. So he draws, like, a little moat. And we're like, and then there's kind of, like, a little ramp. And so there's, like, a little ramp up. And then there's kind of, like, you know, a fence or a guardrail. You know, sometimes there's both. There's a fence and a guardrail, right? And so he's like, how many barriers is that between you and the lions? And I'm like, well, usually it's, like, two or three different barriers. Like, sometimes three, maybe even more barriers between you and the lions and he's like exactly and that is what for the strength of youth and the words of the prophets and apostles are like they're like those little barriers whether it's the barrier that you're leaning up against to get you know the really good picture of the lion or whether it's the moat or like the little ramp that the lion would have to climb up to get to you the little concrete ramp or whatever um, those are things that are going to keep you safe from the lions which in this particular metaphor is like sin and you know the consequences of sin and the for the strength of youth is like that barrier and at the time, you know, I was sullen teenager, and so I had a sullen teen- teenager attitude about this. Is so dumb. I think it's so stupid. But looking back on it now, as an adult, I'm like, oh yeah, that was a great metaphor, because that really is what the standards of the church do: is they protect us from the lions and the other, you know, nasties out there that would want to get us. Yeah, I don't automatically get eaten by a lion if I step over the barrier. But if I step over the barrier and then kind of go down the little concrete hill and then cross the moat, then yeah, the lion's there. So sometimes these standards that seem so strict or the things that we're being asked to do that seem so strict, they're actually holding us back from a whole trip that would take us down into sin and the consequences of. Um, I can tell you personally, one of the things that I struggle a lot with right now is in regards to the word of wisdom, like, you know, like we're not allowed to drink coffee and sweet tea, which is big here in the South. And I just think that's kind of dumb because I'm like, you know what, there's no real reason I can really see behind it or anything. So to me, actually, at this point in my mind, the word of wisdom is all about obedience. And it's all about being obedient to something even when I don't understand it. And following that just because the prophet of God has said, this is the line. This is the barrier that you need to stand behind. And so to me, that is a test of my obedience. Even when I don't understand the reasoning behind it, yeah, I'm going to stand behind this barrier. And so that's something that I know personally in my everyday life I'm currently struggling with, but I'm doing it because I'm being obedient to a prophet of God. And so when we stay obedient to the prophet of God and our church leaders, then we are saved, you know, like Paul. 
So I don't know what particular shipwreck or storm that not drinking sweet tea and coffee is saving me from, but I do know that there is value in being obedient to the word of God and to his servants. And so that's what I'm doing when I do that. So overall, great lesson this week. Great come follow me this week. Um, It helped me a lot to really, as you go through and read these stories, Again, remember Christ. Christ is at the center of these. Because I can be really distracted by going into the minutiae of like each and every story and the historical significance of this. And this is what was going on. But I lose sight of Christ. So it's really important to me to bring Christ back in this week. And Christ is there when we go through our trials. And Christ is there, you know, when we follow our church leaders and Christ is there. And so I hope that you got that out of this episode. So I hope you guys have a great week. I hope you enjoy. Come follow me this week. Keep reading your scriptures. Keep being awesome. Love you guys. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Have a question or comment? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.